This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Chris Wallace. Chris is a professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. She is also a former member of the Canberra Press Gallery and she's the author of How to Win an Election. Chris joined me for a special post-federal election analysis. We examine the federal election results for 2022 in depth, including the massive wins for the Greens and the Independents. Chris also assesses the extent of the media's influence, the effectiveness of campaign strategies, and the next steps for an incoming Albanese Labor government. We also reflect on the demise of the two-party system and where the coalition went wrong. This conversation took place on the first Tuesday after the election, which was held on Saturday, the 21st of May, 2022. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the program Dr. Chris Wallace, who is a professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra, also a former member of the Canberra Press Gallery and author of How to Win an Election, how very relevant for this conversation, where Chris is joining me to discuss the federal election results. As I mentioned at the top of the show, what a massive change and shift in politics in just a day. And uh, we're going to talk about the results, some of the notable seats, uh, the media's influence, the campaign, and what changed or didn't change the result, how effective was political campaigning during this election, as well as the next steps for the incoming Albanese Labor government, which is likely at this point to get potentially 76 or 77 seats in the House of Representatives, which would give them a majority, enough of a majority to be able to govern in their own right, just as Scott Morrison and his government did previously, although at the end, I believe they really had 75 seats and we're just guaranteed supply by Craig Kelly. So I welcome Chris now. Hi there, Chris, and how are you today? Good morning, Amy. I'm, I'm still adjusting, to tell you the truth. I think, like many people, a certain neurochemistry has accompanied the Morrison years, uh, one where we're all full of fight-or-flight neurotransmitters, and as that is ebbing away to a new neurochemistry normal under the Albanese government, I think a lot of people are feeling a bit... You know, slightly fragged, a bit excited, but also a bit kind of tender. We don't often, as as kind of political analysts, talk about emotion in politics, but by God, this is a cracking example of emotion in politics, uh, both as expressed through the ballot box and now in the wake of Labor's victory. I do feel that there's a totally different tone that's just swept through like a breeze throughout the whole of Australia because we've already had the Albanese press conference, the first one, and we did see the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags already placed into the blue room where they weren't present before. Even the press conference just signalled a totally different tone. So it was kind of, I guess, for me, both shocking and refreshing to get an entirely non-combative form of politics and one that wasn't deflecting and obstructing truth. It just felt a very straightforward, rational, easy thing that happened, which I feel like shouldn't be a big deal, but it seems like a big deal. It's a really, really, really big deal. A lot of people, including many journalists covering politics, I think, 
had forgotten that there are other ways to do politics than full-on, full-body compact politics all the time. The symbols really matter, and the coalition really understood that better than anybody in Australian politics. That's why things like the Aboriginal flag and the Torres Strait Islander flag weren't on the podium when Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave presentations. As Paul Keating says, change the government, change the nation, and it is literally true. It is like someone has flicked a switch uh, and the atmos in Canberra is, is completely different. And I just think around the nation there's a sense of the blood pressure dropping, mm. um, except in a few enclaves like, you know, maybe the Sky <laughs> News studio and a, and a few kind of grumpy journalists who have a lot of time and effort invested in their relations with the previous regime who now have to start from scratch and rebuild, having reflected on, you know, whether they were really being their best selves as journalists in the first place. So, yes, it's new, it's good, it's refreshing. It's and they the did give it, government. It is. <laughs> and they did give it a, a pretty good shot, the Murdoch Press and Sky News After Dark, as we saw on Media Watch last night. It was pretty overt at this election. I know it is, you know, at almost every election, but it seemed that at this election things were particularly pronounced and also now the fallout, the shock that has occurred and the disgust and anger from some of the particularly strident commentators on Sky News, you know, that is now very evident. Yes, it's it's been a supercharged election in that sense. And, you know, just think about it for a moment. The people those kind of entities were backing were really literally in a fight for their lives because this was an election. It was super important for the nation, you know, a really pivotal election. But for the individuals concerned in the the previous government who now face the prospect of a federal ICAC with teeth being established, Mm. there were some very personal stakes involved in this election. And, of course, this is going to play out over the next couple of years because, as Anthony Albanese has said, Labor intends having legislation for a federal ICAC with teeth before the parliament, before the end of the year. Uh, People like Helen Haynes, the independent from Indi, has already done a lot of work on this. The Centre for Public Integrity has done a stack of work. Uh, On day one, as Prime Minister, Albanese ordered that work on this begin within the federal bureaucracy in a serious way, not in a toothless tiger way as the previous Porter model had it. So, you know, there's some real, really big stuff happening, um, not just symbolically, but actually for a few people in the previous government who might not have been their best selves, let us, let us put it that way. Yeah. Well, we will soon find out. And Chris, I want to reflect now on what we know so far about the results, because as I mentioned at the start of the show, it was, I think, something that no one really predicted in the full extent of what has happened. I think people thought the Teals ran a great campaign and that, you know, surely Zoe Daniel looked pretty clear to get over the line. But, you know, we've now seen multiple Teal independents get up, as well as some that aren't Teal, some like Dilay as well in Fowler and um, another big scalp there being Christina Keneally. Could you reflect for us a bit on, but, but on the don't results? Forget, don't forget the biggest scalp, Amy. When was the last time you heard of a federal treasurer losing their seat? I can only think of a prime minister. Yes, that's right. But this federal treasurer, Josh Rydenberg, the Liberal leadership heir apparently losing his seat of Kuyong, is gigantic news yeah. and, and really has got very little attention compared to Christina Keneally losing Fowler, uh, which I think is part of the ongoing hangover from the previous reporting frame 
from most political journalists in Australia. And um, there's a big kind of ongoing issue in Australian politics concerning polls. So, yes, uncertainty was heightened at this election around what was likely to happen compared to the last one where everyone believed news poll that Bill Shorten was going to be elected and then afterwards went, what? What happened? Um, but since then, of course, there's been a great dissection of what did happen. The pollsters have tweaked their models and uh, they got a, a first run, I think, as we discussed a few months ago, at the South Australian election uh, where Labor's Malinowskis was elected Premier. And they proved pretty accurate. So I myself had a fair degree of confidence in them as we went into this election. And, you know, they were pretty good. But the big thing about this election is the realisation that you can have a two-party preferred vote of whatever you like, but there's a million ways that that can be constructed underneath in terms of the distribution of primary votes. So I don't think anyone, including the Teals, expected quite the degree of success they had on the weekend. I don't think Labor was expecting its primary vote to be quite as low as it was, and I don't. And I think the, the LNP was hoping that its wouldn't be either. You know, in our system, a preferential system, the two-party preferred vote is what determines government. Labor won it fair and square. But this parliament has a really significant crossbench full of incredibly talented and experienced people who are not anyone's mug. And it's. I think it's going to be the most interesting parliament I think we've ever seen as it comes to grips with both in policy terms and in terms of the practical politics of dealing with each other, negotiating and thrashing out uh, policy that can actually get through Parliament on the big issues like climate change. I think it's just going to be absolutely gripping. I agree. It's really an exciting time to be talking about politics. And I think one of the primary vote points that I've seen pointed out, and it was my certainly my thought as well, was obviously, as you mentioned, Labor's primary vote went down and it was something that on the night the ABC as well as others just kept on hammering home, basically saying, Lee Sale saying, what did Labor do wrong when Tanya Plibersek was quite excited that she would become a minister and they'd be forming government. And I think some people have made that point that, well, of course, when you have such a huge third party, you know, group vote, primary vote, a lot of the Labor primary vote would have headed over to the, that third bunch of independents, Greens and others. Of course, some of that also would have been the Liberal primary vote as well. But it was just kind of, I think, something that was missed on the night was this focus on Labor and its deficiencies, which, of course, you know, it wasn't a perfect campaign. But I think we were also forgetting that people were being strategic with their vote through that preferencing system, especially this election, perhaps as compared with other elections. I, I think you're absolutely right to an extent, you know, never before seen in Australian politics. Uh, in a way, it's been the finest moment for Australian voters because, while a number of people observed at polling booths, people struggling to exactly work out how to vote in a way that would give effect to their quite nuanced intentions at times, the, the bigger point is they were actually bothering to find out and do it. Um, it was an incredibly sophisticated set of moves by Australian voters uh, with, a, with probably a, a result that's going to be highly functional as it turns out. Uh, the problem in very binary two-party systems is there's you know, not enough pressure for people not to take in a broad range of views um, on both sides of a policy, you know, not not just in a conservative direction, but in this parliament it will be in a progressive direction. Um, so I think it's a, a, 
a really intelligent vote by Australia. I think uh, plenty of room for all parties to think about their positions. But Labor understands nothing was going to change, nothing was going to improve in terms of policy on the big issues, as most, pe most Australians want, unless they actually won government. And so that very clever voting pattern that Australians did to produce this exact distribution really does work in terms of creating a functional government with the pressure coming from the progressive side to make policy more progressive rather than more conservative, which, of course, has been the big pressure on Labor for the last you know, several years. So highly functional result, fascinating parliament. Uh, we've done minority government before if it comes to it, though I think Labor will end up in majority. It's going to be gripping. Yeah. And let's reflect on some of the seats. You've just mentioned Josh Frydenberg losing the seat of Kooyong, which is really a big deal because it does show that, as pretty much every commentator said, the Liberal heartland is gone and it's gone to independence. And in some cases, Labor, if you look at Higgins, Katie Allen, they're losing to um, Dr Michelle Anandaraja. We've seen the Liberals lose to independents, to Labor and also to the Greens in Queensland. Could you reflect on some of the seats that you found particularly interesting and the results, the pattern of results that has emerged? This is the really, really, really big deal in this election, apart from the actual change of government, is the fact that the teal independents really represent a kind of revolt by the middle class in safe Liberal seats, particularly middle class professional women the LNP has just completely lost them. And I think people were really shocked as the weekend unfolded when uh, the network started producing electorate maps of Sydney and Melbourne, showing that the richest seats in Australia, you know, around the harbour in Sydney and, and, you know, the nice parts of Melbourne, all usually solid blue Liberal, you know, literally blue ribbon seats for the Liberal Party had all gone teal, stripped away by really high-class candidates backed by massive community engagement. And if you look at recent history, you know, the forerunner of this phenomenon is, of course, Cathy McGowan and her successor, Helen Haynes in Indi, then Zali Stegel in Moringa. You know, they have held on to their seats over time because they are really quality members providing really good service and representation to their electorates. They keep their seats so if you were the, you know, federal director of the Liberal Party now and you looked at what's just happened, you'd go, wow, you know, are we ever going to get those seats back? <laughs> you know, not literally, but at least for several elections because, you know, Monique Ryan, she's just, you know, the classic excellent independent candidate, a paediatric neurologist, totally unafraid of anybody or anything. You know, she's, mm. she's dealt with life and death issues of an extremely high order all her professional life. Someone like Monique Ryan in Kuyong is not going to be easy for the Liberals to knock off, no matter who their pre-selected candidate is. So the Liberal Party is really, you know, it's had its heart stripped out of it in the metropolitan city seats that it's, it's you know, taken for granted forever. And if you're a Liberal strategist, you'd just be going, well, how do we ever get them back? There's a whole spectrum of Liberal responses to this. It's really quite revealing 
on Saturday night, I thought, well, surely they'll realise that, um, you know, they've shifted too far to the right. They've followed the Nationals down a rabbit hole uh, and need to come back up. And, you know, the culture wars and ideological lines they were pushing around Catherine Deeves, you know, these things have been ultimately unsuccessful at getting those religious conservative types, those people in outer suburbs, which Scott Morrison apparently was targeting through that strategy. And in in effect, they've lost their heartland, as you say. Those people have, you know, decided to go with an independent. We've now seen Liberals say, oh, it was just a protest vote and those rich people can afford to because they're not concerned with the cost of living. Uh, we've seen Tina McQueen, the VP of the Liberal Party, say, let's just give up on the teal seats and move on, which I find quite shocking given, you know, its history in the Liberal Party. And uh, we've seen a lot of the kind of more conservative Liberals say that, well, this is the clear sign we need to go further right to differentiate ourselves from the Labor Party. I wonder, what do you think of those responses? Because, I mean, it's in some ways not surprising, but also in other ways quite surprising. It's very surprising to those who do rational analysis of politics. Um, it's a very big mistake. You've got to understand the emotion in these situations and also the institutional framework within which people are saying things. So... I actually did predict that they will would go further to the right in the, in the next couple of years before they have a bit of a rethink of that. And there are a couple of reasons for it. The Liberal Party room is, is going to be much smaller. The moderates have lost those really great seats that the Teals have taken. So the actual Liberal Party party room is going to be, in terms of concentrated right-wing views, much more right-wing than the previous Liberal Party party room makeup. So all of these comments are happening in a context where the Liberal leadership is about to be decided, senior Liberals are playing to an internal audience, that is their fellow remaining MPs, you know, people out in their branches. And I think it's, it's one of the shocking things about Australian politics about is that the Liberal Party's grassroots membership has just become so right-wing that it's producing candidates who are truly out of touch with normal mainstream Australian ways of living and thinking. And you only have to look at the open factional warfare in New South Wales in the Liberal Party to, to see yeah. that. So while that analysis is rational, it's not doesn't reflect the institutional realities on the ground in this historic, specific moment of the Liberal Party's development. And no one's talking about it yet. But if you look at recent developments in European politics, for example, very long-standing parties, you know, storied parties that existed for decades upon decades, formed governments, lost, came back and formed other governments. Many of these parties have just been wiped out. And the Australian Liberal Party has no lock on continuing existence. You know, if it doesn't get its act together and broaden its membership base beyond often religiously motivated right-wingers of one kind or another, Pentecostals, Catholics, mm. whatever... If they don't solve the problem of their base membership, start pre-selecting people who broadly reflect Australia and Australian Australian values, you know, the real ones, not the ones, ones Prime Minister Scott Morrison kept asserting we all believed in, you know, it actually runs the risk of disappearing. If, if you think I'm talking crazy, just reflect on the situation of France for a moment. Uh, both on the right and the left, their traditional mainstream right and left parties are now just rumps in their parliament. The French president invented his own party 
you know, of his own bat reflecting pretty much just his own views mm. and has just won a second term. And the runner-up was, of course, the shocking far-right winger Marine Le Pen, who's learnt to disguise her extreme views in a way that has made her more palatable to mainstream voters. So the Liberal Party is not entitled to continue ad infinitum if it doesn't join the rest of Australia in some sort of middle ground position. If, if it really wants to keep going down the rabbit hole of right-wingedness, it's going the right way about it. They got hammered this time. If they want to see maybe how things could look at the next election, they should take a look at their colleagues in Western Australia, who at the last state election were reduced to two seats and went to Western Australian Parliament's lower house. And now and the Nationals are the opposition. Indeed. And, you know, you talk to WA Liberals of the old style, you know, the more the more mainstream Liberals from Western Australia from, you know, 20, 30 years ago who are trying to fix the current mess, they are really struggling to do it because mm. at every point in the WA Liberal organisation, whether it's officials or, or party committees, it's just full of carpetbaggers and religiously motivated right-wingers. So yeah. actually reforming something, fixing something that's degenerated so far down some sort of crazy rabbit hole, you know, in the end, it, sometimes it's just not possible and, and, and organisations die. So the Libs have really got to have a long, hard think. They're not going to do it in the immediate wake of this election result, but if they don't do it soon, who knows whether well, they'll, they'll be around in five or six years. Yeah. Well, this the amount of people who have a, a kind of religious bent who have joined the Liberal Party in the Victorian branch and the New South Wales branch, like that has been going on for many, many years and has been discussed a lot. It hasn't made headlines or anything, but it has been acknowledged by those who follow politics. So to see this situation come to fruition is not surprising for anyone who's followed politics. And it isn't extreme or exaggerated what you are pointing out here. So, Can yeah. I just say one more thing before we leave religion? We should make clear yeah. there is nothing wrong with being religious. There is nothing wrong with being religious and being involved in politics. That's a forever situation and everyone's entitled to their own views. The problem is when you have parties with stagnating membership bases that are, you know, the Brits have a great term for it, that when entryists arrive and effectively take over stagnant organisations, mm. stack it, get the numbers and then use it to their own ends, in this case to drag a party that used to be less right-wing way in the right-wing direction that's a problem. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, just important to make that caveat. Yeah, appreciate you pointing that out. And with Peter Dutton, obviously, we know that he's not necessarily religious, but he certainly has been part of the more conservative, hawkish side of the Liberal Party, having brought up China and the prospect of war before the election, during the election. We saw those text messages come out to people in marginal electorates saying that boats had arrived from Sri Lanka which was really a low point in the campaign on the on election day. Does anyone think that Peter Dutton really could change, that he could shift back a little bit to a centre-right position to be a political pragmatist? Because it is something that Nikki Sava, I've heard say twice already that she believes Peter Dutton could, um, I guess, transform himself into something that the Liberal Party needs. Yes, and Nikki Savin knows her liberal politicians, doesn't she? She's yeah. been, she's just written outstanding columns in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald over the last year, really brilliant analyses of what's going on in the Liberal Party and national parties from a very informed position. Look, Nikki's, Nikki knows and, and people in Canberra broadly know that 
out of Dutton and Morrison, Morrison was considered the more dangerous choice for Liberal leader. And the reason is Peter Dutton is, uh, how can I put it, he's cunning in, in his political tack. With Morrison, what you saw, what, what we got, that's, that's what he really is. But with Peter Dutton, uh, he, you know, the guy who famously refers to throwing a bit of red meat to the base in things like the African gang scare in Melbourne line, which was completely disgraceful, terribly effective. But it was actually a conscious political move to do that. So, you know, someone who can calibrate their political lines for effect, you know, yes, theoretically he is capable of tacking more to the centre. Whether anyone would believe him, I don't, I really doubt whether that's the case. And, you know, the big unspoken about factor with Dutton until this week where Mark McGowan spoke out is that, you know, he's not that smart, you know. Mark McGowan basically said he's as dumb as a box of hammers. I've seen him in in action. There's nothing there. And, you know, if you're going to be opposition leader up against a government that's cohesive, intelligent, nuanced, doing good policy, you've got to have a bit more to offer. And that's why I've always thought that whether Dutton gets up in the immediate aftermath as Liberal leader or not, sooner rather than later, the Liberals will have to turn to Queensland engineer Karen Andrews, the outgoing Home Affairs Minister, to be a leader because, you know, as we both know historically, in the end, women have to clean up the mess and the Liberal Party is a shocking mess. And uh, Karen Andrews looks like a much more plausible solution than Peter Dutton as leader certainly in the medium term, if not right now. Yeah, I do remember Karen Andrews coming out on, I think it was ABC 7.30 last year, talking about the toxic situation for women in politics, which, you know, was pretty brave of her to do. Perhaps you can do it more as a Liberal than a Labor politician, I'm not sure. But, you know, she seems to be one of the clear front runners on a front bench that is particularly lacking in talent and lacking in an obvious choice, I would say. That's true, though. She's as capable of being as, uh, how can I put it, pragmatic as Peter Dutton in, in mm. tossing out political lines for right-wing effect uh, as well. So she's she's no angel in that respect. Well, she was um, the Home Affairs portfolio, so it does say a bit, doesn't it? That That does say quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Chris, I want to also address the Nationals because we've seen Barnaby Joyce come out and say, oh, well, you know, we've retained all of our seats. How great is that? We've done our job. Um, it's up to the Liberals to to look at themselves hard and, you know, think about what they're going to do moving forward. We've just heard Darren Chester this morning on ABC RN Breakfast suggest that that's really quite disingenuous um, and the fact that actually the Nationals did have quite substantial swings against them in some seats. One, for example, in Nichols here in Victoria because there was a really strong independent campaigner who just lost. So essentially, you know, the stats show that about 75% of National MPs suffered a negative swing in their primary vote, so 12 out of 16 MPs, and with swings from minus 23 to minus six. So, you know, there's a a substantial indicator or message really to the nationals that perhaps not everyone, even nationals voters, were particularly happy with the job they were doing. Do you think that Barnaby Joyce will be remaining leader of the nationals next week when they spill the leadership roles? Impossible to tell. I I saw him interviewed last night on on 7.30 on that topic and 
you know, he, he seemed totally relaxed. But the point is, I think he's totally relaxed whether he's leader or not because yeah. they're in opposition. Exactly. You know, there, there are no great spoils to being National Party leader as opposed to Deputy Prime Minister. And when you look at the National Party's performance over the last year or so, it didn't seem like a party really, really interested in staying in government. If it wanted in coalition to, to, to win this election, it needed to behave quite differently and again, you know, the National Party's performance seemed very much inwardly directed to the theatre of pleasing the mining companies, having the race to the bottom in terms of who can be more right wing and have their face smeared with coal the darkest. Uh, we had the political cosplay of Matt Canavan, absolutely hilarious if it wasn't so disturbing. The Nationals weren't behaving like a serious party, let alone a serious party that wanted to be in government. You know, if yeah. they just want to have the white cars, the offices, the travel allowance, you know, it all flows in opposition with a lot less work. So the Nationals, you know, Barnaby Joyce is right. They didn't lose a seat. They nearly picked up a Senate seat. Compared to the Liberals, they did quite well. But, of course, the Liberals took the hit for the Nationals' idiotic positions and, and poor behaviour. So... The coalition pays the price. Yeah. And we're really referencing, I think, one of the examples being net zero by 2050, which, I mean, we all knew their heart wasn't in it, but they really are showing that it really wasn't in it, with Barnaby saying that they would be reviewing whether they really support that anymore. And it's something that has come up with the Liberals as well and these discussions around, well, we weren't really invested in net zero by 2050. I know that there are moderates saying that we made that decision, we're going to stick to it. But it does seem that Albanese's claim that we're going to end the climate wars may be potentially optimistic. I'm not sure if, you know, because we now have a more progressive crossbench that is focused on climate change, perhaps their voices will drown out opposition ideological dissent. But I wonder, how do you think the tone of parliament is going to be? Should we have a Peter Dutton opposition leader, the Liberals kind of out in the wilderness, and now huge crossbench in the lower house, especially with independents and Greens? I think it's incumbent on all of us at this moment to kind of pause and try and disengage from the our habits of thinking, our habits of interacting and reacting in the ways that have really become deeply ingrained over the last several years. And I say that this now in the context you've raised for a really important reason, and it's this. Reality is moving so far, so fast on the ground in relation to energy that the Albanese government needs to do something and will do something that the Morrison government could have easily done, which would have solved the whole problem. Uh, but of course, the coalition didn't want to solve the problem. They wanted the climate wars to keep going for political mm. gain, right? But the fact is, and it's been true for some time now, renewable energy in Australia is significantly cheaper than legacy energy. The market has decisively moved in a way that renewable energy is the only energy that makes sense. So the Morrison government was using public policy to lean against that. So the Albanese government, even through the simple act of stopping interfering in markets through subsidising old energy sources and plants, just by stopping artificially propping them up, by taking government out of that, Things are moving so fast, so far, so fast, 
you know, the market to a large extent is going to solve a lot of the problem. So this is kind of an historical truth that is not widely recognised and it's going to massively help the government shift Australia onto a proper future energy basis because it's happening anyway. Mm -hmm. So providing the government is decisive, and I think they will be, providing the Greens and others don't make the perfect the enemy of the good because the government will want to say we went to the election with certain promises which voters expect them expect to be fulfilled. Uh, providing everyone understands that the underlying context is one where the market has decisively shifted towards renewables for price reasons, and if government doesn't get in the way of that, that will be a powerful force changing things anyway. Things will be pretty good. Plus, of course, Amy, the absolute other essential, which is that Labor does what it did in the 80s in relation to the steel industry, the textile, clothing and footwear industry and some other industries, produces really strong, credible transition plans so that people in affected communities don't get dumped into the garbage can of history, but instead get assistance, get training to get new jobs. Albanese announced some things during the election, like the, the plan to put $100 million into, of government money into trying to establish an Australian battery manufacturing industry in those resource areas where people are going to lose jobs. There's going to have to be significant industry policy interventions to make this work. But, you know, it's the kind of government that seems set to do it. Let's see how it works out. I'm pretty optimistic on all of those fronts. Well, the Greens are going to have a huge amount of sway in the upper house, given that they've expanded their representation by quite a lot. And um, their policy also was focusing very much on that idea of needing a, a safe transition that meant that people weren't worse off in terms of their job security, for example. Anthony Albanese has said he wants to bring people together and that he is clearly a good negotiator. He's been able to you know, work across the aisle in previous parliaments and true, take a leadership true. role there. Yeah. So do do you think that he'll try to negotiate and provide more buy-in from, say, the independents and the Greens, who do need to go back to their electorates showing that they've achieved something that their own constituents voted for so that they can you know, stay in power, especially the Teal independents, and retain those seats and prevent the Liberals from taking government again? I think voters expect it, and I think the lesson of this recent election is if they don't get what they want, they're going to kick the asses of the people who didn't deliver. So, you know, I think people are going to want no messing around, no party games from people trying to up themselves relative to other political parties. I think it's a time for collaboration. People on that side of politics talk collaboration. Well, let's see it happen. But let's be optimistic and look for and, you know, positively reinforce the collaboration, the cooperation to reach good shared policy outcomes. Let's be less inclined to, at the first sign of an issue, kind of duking up and thumping people rhetorically. Uh, I think now that the, the coalition's era of government has closed for at least some time, I think, we need to develop different political habits, even people like you and me, not letting ourselves get revved up by the Sky News gang, not going to the absolute barricades on the slightest difference of policy between the Labor Party and the Greens. You know, let's just pause, try and find the common ground, try and help each other as a nation, as voters, as politicians, as staffers, as bureaucrats, as whoever, 
to deal collaboratively and well and fundamentally with the very significant challenges that have been outstanding and, and require have required our attention for some time. It's really important. Well, I think what the Australian public voted for was collaboration. You know, it seems that they voted for the Greens and the Independents and others to make sure that collaboration happens and that you get the best policy outcome on some of these key issues, especially climate change. That's true. But, you know, a lot of people did vote for Labor and Labor has formed the government. And it's not going to just have to be Labor that's collaborative, listening and engaged. It's going to have to be the Greens too. It's going to have to be the Teals. It's going to have to be the other independents. And, you know, this is an opportunity now to reset Australian political culture. Everybody needs to positively embrace that on the non-coalition side of politics. You know, they will continue being patted on the head by the right-wing Sky News peeps. You know, they can keep going down that rabbit hole. But on the other side of politics across the board broadly, This is the moment when we have to collectively develop better ways of politically engaging with each other and getting good stuff done, not just jostling for political advantage and ego satisfaction. I'm speaking with Dr Chris Wallace and we are talking about the federal election results. Now, Chris, in our last conversation, we talked about the media's role. And I just wanted to reflect on that, given that you said, let's have a new dawn of collaboration and and obviously a different tone in politics, which we have already been seeing from the Albanese Labor government. One of the problems with the way that media is done at the moment and has been done and was done during the campaign is that a lot of TV and radio look to what's happened in the newspapers and unfortunately, due to media concentration, the Murdoch press owns the majority of the newspapers in the country. And, you know, the Nine press is um, perhaps a little bit more centre-right than it has been in the past under, you know, Fairfax, for example. So, you know, when a lot of outlets, including the ABC, take their cues from predominantly right-leaning news, ones that seem to, you know, create beat-ups over certain issues, do you think that even that might have to change, that journalists might have to change the way they're doing journalism and looking at, you know, how the agenda is set every day in politics? Is there you know, an alternative way of doing that? I think journalists do need to reflect on how they've been suckered, I think, into doing really low-grade football reporting, who's up, who's down, who's got the better uppercut. I think it's, it's been the coalition way of encouraging journalists to stay in line inadvertently without realising it, because while you're doing that kind of low-grade reporting, you're not attending to issues, you're not attending to policy, you're not actually facilitating a functional polity. And and really, that should be one of the media's roles, not to support or oppose governments, but rather to report things accurately, fairly, and in a way that enables a society to function well. So, you know, that that old thing in, in journalism school, If someone says it's raining and another person says it's not, balance isn't reporting both of those views. You know, good journalism is looking out the window, seeing if it's raining and reporting accordingly. X says it's raining and they're right. Y says it's raining and they're wrong or, you know, you just don't even report them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think journalists are human beings. There are some fantastic journalists in the Canberra Press Gallery. There are others who have really just got way too cosy with the coalition. And I think generally speaking, as human beings, 
you know, you've got to be aware of falling into habits, into modes of, of thinking and operating and even reporting that aren't constructive, aren't fair and aren't decent. And I think um, all of the examples you, you just used about some, some pretty poor reporting standards are true, but I think the other thing that's forgotten, and I think it's just particularly true in some ABC reporters over the last several weeks and few years, is that tone really matters. A careful, respectful, polite, decent question can also be a hard question or a hard point that you've just made. But when it's made with this kind of grudging, sneering, passive-aggressive tone, uh, people get really tired of it. And I think many in the ABC don't understand that their biggest fans are really turned off by the tone that's evident from several ABC reporters uh, and compares that that is just not professional, not appropriate, and really needs to change. Uh, and if it means that some people have got to be moved on from big jobs where they've been for a while, well, so be it. Everybody needs to really reflect on journalistic culture as a, as a constant thing. You know, it's always something up for a review. And I think it's it's not been noticed how uh, the tone problem has become a big one, even in our favourite regular news outlets. And Chris, one of the other things we've referenced is women, but also just diversity more broadly. And we've seen cultural diversity finally take a a better stage in this uh, federal election. And we've seen a number of South Asian Australians get elected, Chinese Australians as well. It's a very exciting time. A lot of Indigenous Australians. Yeah, absolutely. Epochal election in that respect. Yeah, and we have seen the number of women in the House of Representatives go up by, you know, huge numbers, at least on the Labor side, but we have seen a huge decline in women Liberals. So I wondered, you know, when you're reflecting on the makeup of the Parliament and the the kind of diversity of those candidates who've been successful, what do you think the effect of that will be and, and do you have, you know, reflections on the achievements that we've made in that regard? I think on average it'll be the highest quality Parliament we've possibly ever had and certainly the best massively so in terms of diversity it's really really encouraging and and that can only help the parliamentary ecosystem it can only help get better policy outcomes and to the extent that's happening then you know we can only all be the better for it but it throws into stark contrast coming back to the coalition just how things are dire on that side of politics and will remain so until quotas are brought in, which they inevitably must one way or another. I think uh, I think the number of Liberal women in the, in this parliament is down to about six, yep. an extraordinarily low figure. I mean, if you added all the coalition MPs and senators together from the last parliament, women only made up one quarter of their representation, but it's going to be way worse this time. And it's so bad, it's actually for some years now been dragging Australia down in the world gender rankings. So... If the coalition really does want to ever win an election again, and if it does seriously want to fix its political culture, it's got to get quotas. They're the only things that will fix the man problem in the coalition. I'm not going to call it a woman problem. It's a man problem. And, you know, for the health of the polity overall, we need a a good opposition. And unless there are more women, unless there's a, a coalition party room that reflects Australia better, you know, it's just not going to be functional. Yeah, yeah. Chris, just finally, the one kind of elephant in the room is Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party and the United Australia Party, which is Clive Palmer's party, 
They didn't do all that well in the election. They may end up with some senators, but even then, you know, Pauline Hanson's fighting for her Senate place. I wonder, do you have reflections on that, especially because Liberals have suggested that's where they can take votes next time? It seems that even spending, you know, $100 million on advertising via Clive Palmer hasn't resulted in massive wins and capturing the minds and imaginations of enough Australians. It is encouraging that um, Clive Palmer's massive UAP spend didn't result in any actual seats or Senate spots being won. However, you've got to consider what that move's real intention was. Uh, After the last election, Clive Palmer took credit for the Morrison government's re-election, saying his preferences had delivered Morrison government, and he's largely correct about that. I mean, the government had a tiny sliver of a majority when it won, and that came down to the seats it picked up in Queensland, often on Palmer preferences. So the Palmer UAP operation was really about trying to stop Labor getting elected. Uh, It worked last time. It didn't work this time. I think one of the things that this parliament's got to think about is election spending caps and campaign finance overall. And this could be a really interesting area where the Teals and the Greens could make a big difference. I think campaign funding reform is not much mentioned, but should be as high a priority as a federal integrity commission if we're really going to have ethical elections without the possibility of people, not every time with large amounts of money, but every so often, too regularly for comfort, actually buying elections. Yeah. Well, I did talk to Catherine Williams about that when we were talking about the great book she wrote with Stephen Charles. And one of the other things she did bring up was truth in advertising. And I think what we do need to reflect on as well is the use of social media and mass text messaging and other forms of advertising and and finding a way to regulate that because it got really out of control at this election, especially for those living in a marginal seat. It was just like a bombardment. If you got on someone's text list, you you would have gotten pretty angry and upset by the end of it, even if you you voted for the party who was pestering you. Yes, it was a dire situation, one that's really galloping away. But when you you think about the, the money question, this has actually been an issue since the 2016 election. When in the last, in the dying moments of the campaign, Malcolm Turnbull donated, I think it was $1.75 million of his own money to the Liberal Party to buy extra election advertising. And of course, Malcolm Turnbull only narrowly won the 2016 election. So, of course, none of these things have been possible to address while the coalition's been in office because they benefited from those things not being addressed. But now, with a different parliament, it's a big chance. I hate to think this is true, but possibly the only chance this parliament, to get it done, to get campaign finance reform done, to reform election laws in the the areas, the wider areas you've mentioned. Uh, Because if it doesn't happen this election and the next election's held before, you know, it's not fixed before the next election, the result might be narrowly in the other direction back to the coalition. So, you know, this parliament, use it. It's your big chance, guys, and women, you know, go for it. Fix it now because if you don't, Who knows what the next result will be like. Yeah, well, integrity is a political vote winner, we've discovered. So it is time to do it. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I know we've just scratched the surface of what happened, but we will obviously see things continue to be analysed, I'm sure, as the weeks and months 
continue. But people can also check out your columns in the nine newspapers when they're up there. And I know you've just written about uh, women in politics, so uh, people can check that out. And we've tweeted it on our Twitter page. I'm actually in a few places. I've actually got a regular column in Nikkei Opinion now, which is fantastic writing for an international audience. Mm. Occasionally in the in the old Fairfax papers, Saturday paper, The Conversation. It's good that we are getting a bit more of an ecosystem and I think that's something that, you know, as as people demand more and better commentary and analysis can only continue. So here's to diverse media. Agreed, agreed. So I think the message is just follow Chris on Twitter and you'll find when she <laughs> writes something. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. Good on you, Amy. I've just been speaking with Professor Chris Wallace and we've been discussing the federal election results. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.